Go ahead and grab your Bible. We are in the book of Titus. The book of Titus. And um, we've been tracking along here, kind of slowly, going through, uh, carry out the ministry of the church. Uh, we've gone through these qualifications. You remember back in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Let me review them with you just briefly. For this reason, Paul says, I left you, Titus, in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I have directed you. Namely, and here are the qualifications, if any of these men, if any of them be above reproach, the husband of one wife, meaning a one-woman man, having children who believe, children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellion, if they are... Uh, to be overseers, they must be above reproach as God's steward, verse 7. They can't be self-willed, quick-tempered, addicted to wine, brawlers, not fond of sordid gain. They're not in this for themselves. Verse 8, we saw last week, here's what they should be. They need to be hospitable, love strangers. Not just those who love them in return. Love what is good, sensible, just. They need to be devout. They need to be separated. And they need to be self-controlled. That the Holy Spirit is free to work within these men. Those are the, those are the type of men who would be the leaders of God's church. The faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. That which they've heard from Paul, that which they've learned from the apostles, that which has been passed down to them. In a word, these men need to be orthodox in their belief. They need to be orthodox. Now, I don't know if you understand what the word orthodox means. That's kind of a $10 seminary word. Let me break it down for you. You have heard of the word orthodontist, right? An orthodontist does what? He's the guy who puts braces on our kids and charges like a million dollars. Isn't that about right? Yeah, I haven't got there yet, but that's what I'm hearing. And you go on this lifetime payment plan to get all your kids braces and, and such. I see some of you nodding. Some of you, amen. An orthodontist, technically an orthodontist, is one who makes your teeth straight. To be orthodox when it comes to theology and doctrine means that you are of, of the opinion about God. You're of the opinion that is straight, that is correct, that is accurate, that is plumb, that is flush. It is true. To be orthodox, to hold fast to that word, to that teaching that has been passed down from the apostles to this next generation, is to be orthodox in that they have a straight, correct opinion theologically of their God. And the word means literally that they grab hold of it, they grasp it, and they tuck it to their chest. They hold fast. They hold tightly, securely. Doctrine is accurate. It is true. It is straight. If they're not, they do not qualify. Further, verse 9, second half, he says that with that Information with that correct doctrine, there's something that they are to do with it. They're not just to hold it to their chest. They're not just to guard it for themselves. Men who would qualify as the leaders of God's people have to be able to do two things. Look at the rest of verse 9. You get a positive and a negative. So that, so that you hold on to it, they hold fast to the teaching that they've had, 
So that, here's the purpose. So that they will be able both to, and here's the positive, exhort in sound doctrine and to, here's the negative, refute those who contradict. Exhort positive to say to the church, to the believers, this is right and true and they are to edify the church with sound doctrine. Correct doctrine. Doctrine that goes back to the original teaching. Doctrine that holds true throughout the generations, not the newfangled teaching of the day. They have to go back and they have to be able to exhort the body of Christ. It's a twofold role of teaching. Now, that doesn't mean that these men have to qualify and have to have the ability or the capability or the giftedness to be able to stand up here and teach to hundreds of people. But they have to, on some level, be able to take the doctrine, take the orthodox. Well, they're not just to exhort. They are to, look at what it says, refute those who contradict. And the inference is that they do both. They exhort with sound doctrine and they carry that sound doctrine into refuting those who contradict. The uh, inference is that there will be those who contradict. There will be those who contradict. And so these men, to qualify as the leaders of God's church, they have to be all those things in the previous verses. And now here is their primary chief responsibility and duty that they have to know in their heart, they have to be able to to hold on to tightly, firmly, the plumb line of the faith, the fundamental doctrines of our theology. They have to know that, but they have to be able to exhort the body. And when challenges arise, when error arises, they have to be able to refute. Now, that word refute could also be translated rebuke. But here's what I want to explain to you. It doesn't just mean that they pop off and they respond to an error. That they say, oh no, you're wrong, get out of here. It's more than that. The word refute has the idea, it carries with it the idea that they can handle the doctrine, they can handle the word in such a way that they can explain why there is error. They can explain why this is a contradiction to sound doctrine. They can open up the word and go through the fundamentals of the faith. They can take salvation in a nutshell and help someone who has gone astray to get back on track. They can exhort and they can refute. Look at the next verse especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced. Listen, church, uh, in Paul's day and in our day, we do not live in a vacuum spiritually. We do not live in a world uh, that allows or that uh, agrees with everything that we hold as solid, sound, fundamental, orthodox doctrine. Amen? That's been the truth from Paul's day right down. Even prior to Paul, there has always been in humanity something about us in every generation that rebels against orthodoxy. You see it every generation with a new error that comes out, with a new, uh, with a new problem with the fundamentals of the faith that comes out to refute the deity of Christ, to refute the sufficiency of Scripture, the trustworthiness of Scripture, to refute the role of the Holy Spirit. Every generation we get a new one, and every so often, every third generation or so, an old one comes back up in a different form. Why do we need these men? He said, because Satan has other men. And they're there. And they're going to do their job. And do you see what their job is? Do you see what their role will be? Verse 10, they're rebellious, empty talkers. Meaning they don't have the truth backing up what they say. 
empty talkers and deceivers. That's their job description. That's, that's how they are described. Those are the men. Now listen, and well, somebody stole his body. And that's not right. He didn't rise from the dead. There's another reason. And there were deceivers then. There were deceivers in Paul's day. There were deceivers in every generation since. And there will be even more deceivers, Scripture says, as times draw to an end. This is the context that we live in. Verse 10. Why do we need to raise up these men who are sound in their theology, who can exhort and refute? Because they're going to, need, they're going to be needed. Because there will be other men who say that's not right, that's not true. Just like in the garden, God didn't mean this. Surely you won't die. Surely uh, this sin is okay. Surely this you can get away with. Surely now that we've been saved, we can sin however much we want. All kinds of errors. We go on and on and on. Errors will come, is Paul's point. And there are men who will bring them. Now keep going. Verse 11. We get our command here. These men, they must be silenced. They must be silenced. Verse 11 also tells us why. Because, because they're upsetting whole families. Now, in other passages, other pastoral epistles, we find out that uh, false teachers are not upsetting whole families. They're upsetting some of the women. They're upsetting some children. Um, one passage says that like uh, Paul in this place, and it won't hurt anybody. Paul calls it in other places, uh, literally gangrene or cancer, that if we allow false teachers and their false doctrine, their error to remain in the body, it spreads like wildfire. He says like cancer, like leaven. It leavens the whole lump. Before we know it, it's spread everywhere. Error in the church, theological, orthodox error, has to be addressed And it has to be immediately and completely silenced or the whole body will suffer. He says whole families are being lost. Whole families are being lost, church. We need men. We need men who can learn the fundamentals of the faith, take those fundamentals, hold them dear to themselves, exhort the church with them, and refute those who come with error. Because there will be those who come with error. They're out there, they always have been out there, and they always will be out there. What do we do with them? We have, to, we have to meet them head on. We have to silence those men. We have to silence them with the truth. Why? Because we're losing whole families to the error. I mean, these type of false teachers, these people who bring error into the body, they tend to get people linked to them. They tend to grab other people. They tend to get people to buy into their beliefs, buy into their error. That's how it works. And can I tell you this? It may not always be, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They come in with their smooth speech. It sounds good. It sounds half right. They got the Christian t-shirt on. They know all the songs. They can sing and worship with you. They're not always obvious. They're not the guy waving their hand saying, I'm a heretic. I'm a heretic. It often creeps in. And Paul says, the men who would lead the church, they have to be able to deal with this head on. These men must be silenced. Keep going. They must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. 
How are they doing it? They're teaching things they should not teach. And he exposes a motive here in the end of verse 11. They're teaching these things for the sake of sordid gain. You saw that phrase used up earlier, that our elders cannot be men who seek sordid gain. But there are those, he continues in this verse, who are out for their own personal monetary gain. The next verse will tell us why this can be true on the island of Crete. Look what he says here. He quotes one of their own prophets, verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul believes he's a true prophet, but they believe he's a prophet. Uh, It's probably, most likely, most scholars believe, a reference to a poet named Epimenides who lived in this time uh, shortly before. And he said, quote, Cretans, and he was a Cretan himself, was starting churches. Not in a context of Christianity. You're starting a church, a Christian church, in a context of error, in a context that is antagonistic at best to Christ and the cross and salvation by faith and by grace alone. Error will be there. And the motive of these men is for their own personal gain more often than not. In fact, he says, one of their own even said about them that they're, they're liars, gluttons. He said, you know what? What he says is true. Titus, we need men out of the midst of that group. We need the few, the proud, out of that group of Cretans, the cream of the crop, that are moral men, that are men who are set apart in their character, so that with their lives they do not disqualify themselves when they speak with their orthodoxy. So that when they speak about their doctrine, when they speak about the theology of the faith, when they talk about salvation, their life doesn't disqualify them. They are to be this way. Here's what they are to do. They are to hold fast to the teaching, to the sound doctrine. Exhort the church. Refute error. Error will be there. It always has been and it always will be. These gain. They're out for their own gain. And their lives make that obvious. Their own people have said, and Paul quotes their own. Now keep going here. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely. We get our second command. They are to be silenced. And now he says, for this reason. Now do you catch what this reason is? This reason is not because they are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. The reason is... The reason that they are to be silenced and the reason that they are to be reproved severely is twofold. We have families, we have believers, we have children in the faith who are at risk. And we can't risk the children of the faith. Jesus said it this way, stumbling blocks will come, but woe to those by whom they come. He said in a parable that while men are sleeping, the evil one comes in and sows tares among the wheat. Listen, they will come in. They have to be dealt with swiftly. They have to be dealt with quickly and directly. This is very strong language on the part of Paul. 
Now, we're not talking about guys. Let me make this clear. We're not talking about men and women who come into the church and they happen to have a different uh, theology on this or that that really has no salvific implications, that really has no trying to gain recruits for their side. And they have no tact. They have no class about it. And they are uh, spreading like an infection. They are spreading what we would call an error. That kind of person has to be silenced. The person who comes in and says, you know what, I happen to believe this. Uh, it's probably because of this background that I've come out of. You know, I was raised in, in such and such church. I was raised in such and such denomination. And I was always raised believing this. And they come in and they want to have a conversation about uh, those differences. And they say, you know, I, I understand that I'm different here than you are. Uh, and you know what? This church believes this. And I'm going to respect that. And I'll be here. And, and we can have a dialogue with them. Those people can stay as long as they want. But the guy who is deceiving, the guy who is out there for sword gain, the guy who is out there recruiting families, destroying families with obvious error to orthodoxy, they must be silenced. And he says they must be reproved severely. Look at the goal at the end of verse 13. I want you to see that this is a positive goal. Although they are to be silenced and they are to be reproved severely, would you look at the hopefulness of the heart of the Apostle Paul. We reprove them so that they may be sound in faith. The goal of all reproof, the goal of all correcting of error is to bring people into orthodoxy, to bring people into truth, to help them see the light from the dark, to help them understand right here. Verse 14, here's what being sound in faith looks like. To be sound in faith would mean that they no longer pay attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Let me tell you what that means. Earlier, back in verse 10, he said that these rebellious men, these empty talkers and deceivers, they were particularly those of the circumcision, or especially those of the circumcision. The point was, in Acts 2, we find out that on the island of Crete, there were many, uh, many men led to Christ of the Jewish faith at Pentecost, we find that these men have gone back now to the island of Crete and there's a strong Jewish Christian uh, group of believers on this island. Now, what has always been the case in all of the letters that you read in the New Testament, uh, for the most part, all the pastoral epistles, you find that there's always this tension with the Jews, the Orthodox Jews who have now come to Christ and they have to carry their religion, they have to carry their traditions into the Christian faith. And while salvation is now by faith alone and in Christ alone, they still have all these things that they've done before. And on the island of Crete, you have the same issue. You have the same struggle. And so now we've got these guys. They're Jews, and they have beliefs from their old traditions. They've carried that now into the faith. And some of them are these deceivers that Paul is talking about. And they're in verse 15, uh, 16, 15. Prove them to bring them into sound doctrine would mean that they would go away from those myths and those commandments, those extra principles, those extra rules and regulations that men make up. Because these guys, as doing that, they turn away from the truth. They don't just corrupt the truth. They don't just taint the truth. They turn their backs on the truth. Now, in verse six, uh, 15, Paul gives us one line here. A one-line argument as to uh, the issue itself. To the pure, he says, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind 
and their conscience are defiled. Let me read that again. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Their doctrinal error, you could also see this in Romans 14 uh, for a full discussion on this topic. Uh, In Romans 14, Paul goes into great detail. Here he gives us one line. The fact of the matter is he would say that the Jews hold to the religion, the traditions of men. They're doing things to please God. They see uh, many things in life as not pure, and they do things to make up for that purity. And Paul says, we don't need to do anything more than what Christ has already done. Those who are pure in Christ look at the world and look at life and they see purity. And they profess to know God. With their lips, they say they are His. But look at what the truth is. In the end, we know their motives are selfish. And in verse 16, he says their deeds expose them. They profess to know God, but their deeds deny Him. Their deeds deny him. Now, the book of James gets a lot of flack for saying just this. But in every pastoral epistle, the Apostle Paul has said what the book of James says once. He says it over and over and over again. In fact, one major theme of the book of Titus is that the Apostle Paul will say over and over and over again that good deeds will follow the true believer. Go back to uh, verse 1. Of chapter 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of truth, which is according to godliness. Meaning that in Christianity, godliness, right deeds, right action, necessarily follows suit. It doesn't earn their salvation, but it necessarily comes. The reverse is also true. If you look at the life of one of these false teachers, one who has crept into the body, More times than not, you're going to see that their life tells on them. It doesn't work out for them. What they say they believe doesn't show up in their life. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him. And look what he says. There's some harsh words at the end of the book of Romans. He's giving them a warning against false teachers. And at the end of that warning, very interesting, he exposes who is behind these detestable, disobedient, and worthless men. He says, it is Satan himself. It is Satan himself. Well, let me close with this. I'm way over here. Um, in the 50s, Pepsi and Coke had a, had a pretty good battle beginning. And I know here in, uh, here in Georgia, we're big, we're big Coke fans, right? Yeah, I'm a Pepsi fan. Don't hold that against me. Um, but in the 50s, Coke and Pepsi really, really started going at it. I mean, it was, a big, it was a big war against each other and who would be the favorite flavor of America, even to the point where Dwight Eisenhower in World War II, he actually would send Coca-Cola overseas to the military so that they could have a taste of home. I mean, that was his goal, that they could, they could taste America. In fact, Coca-Cola became synonymous with um, soft drinks themselves. So that um, if you said, uh, if you want to say, I want a Dr. Pepper, I want a Sprite or an RC or whatever it was, you didn't say any of those things. You just said, I I need a Coke. 
And so Coke has become even synonymous with all soft drinks at all. And they were winning the battle for a long time. I mean, this was some interesting stuff. They started what was, you remember, the Pepsi generation. And they sweetened the pot a little bit, very literally. They made Pepsi sweeter, and they put more caffeine in it. Perhaps making it a little more addictive, right? So they sweetened the pot a little bit, and they started putting out all these commercials, not with old guys sitting on the porch drinking a Coca-Cola in a nice icy bottle. They started putting out all these new hip commercials, and they got people like Madonna and uh, anyone else who could identify with the younger generation, and they said, this is the drink of a new generation. You remember that? And then Coke replied. Coke came back, and their marketing strategy was that uh, they put out a commercial which has been said uh, uh, may be one of the greatest commercials ever. It was the commercial where they, they put a bunch of hippies in a field, and they sang the song. You remember the song? I'd like to... World to sing. Yeah, I'm not going to sing it in perfect harmony. There's no harmony up here, right? Uh, and so they came back with what's been named one of the greatest commercials ever, right? And they said, we're going we're gonna to make the world sing about Coca-Cola, right? And they, they, they got the one up, right? Well, uh, Pepsi came back, and um, I want to make sure I get this right here. Pepsi came back. Yeah, you remember. They got the... Uh, the new commercials out, and they did the Pepsi Taste Challenge. Remember this? Their, their blowback to Coca-Cola was the Pepsi Taste Challenge, and so they did all these commercials. Where, so Pepsi got a leg up. They started, they started convincing all of America that Pepsi just tastes better. So here's what Coke did. Coke made uh, what some marketing uh, analysts have said one of the greatest mistakes of all time. They changed their formula. You remember this? They went from Coca-Cola to new Coke. Remember that? It's the new Coca-Cola. And they changed their formula. You know what they did? They made it sweeter. They added a little more caffeine. And it strangely started tasting a little bit more like Pepsi. Because Pepsi had now proven that everybody likes the taste of Pepsi more. You remember what happened? America got outraged. This stuff is horrible. Nobody liked it. Nobody liked it, and they spoke out, and they told Coke, it's, it's terrible. Bring back the old Coke. So you know what Coke did? They made up for it. They did what may be the wisest thing marketing history has ever seen. They came back and publicly apologized for changing their formula. And they said this, and I quote, We didn't realize that we were the taste of all of America. In one fell swoop, they took their error and they made it, they corrected it, and they said, We are the taste of America. We didn't realize it. Thank you for speaking out. It worked. And Coke's taken a leg up ever since. We in the church... We're always in danger of this. We're always in danger of this. The danger is that as a church, we uh, lick our finger and stick it up in the wind, the prevailing winds of our day. And we say, what is the world saying now? What is truth today? What is the world buying into now? What are they believing now? 
instead of staying with the classic. Staying with the classic formula, the orthodox doctrines of our faith. And now we struggle as a church. We struggle as a church to hold to the fundamentals of the faith. The Apostle Paul says, here's what we do. We've always had this struggle. It was always going to be a struggle with humanity involved. So here's what we do. You find men in every city, men of worthy character, whose lives will not disqualify them from speaking about the doctrinal truth of our faith. You elevate them, you give them responsibility, and you give them authority. You teach them sound doctrine. They're going to push the church like a wave uh, to a small boat in the ocean, or as the wind does to that little, what's that thing called on the top of a barn, Bruce? A weather vane. That's that's the picture there in Ephesians, that we get tossed to and fro. That's going to happen. What we need are men who will hang on to the fundamentals of the faith. And they'll play offense and they'll play defense. They'll play offense by teaching the truth. Teaching the truth. How do you keep weeds out of your lawn? A bunch of you have Bermuda lawn that's just now going from brown to green and you've got all kinds of weeds in your lawn. You know the best way to get rid of the weeds in your lawn? Fertilize your lawn. Fertilize your lawn. The church has to teach the truth. We have to be on the offensive. We have to fertilize the believers with the truth of the gospel. We are in the offense. We exhort with the truth. That's why uh, Sunday in and Sunday out, if you come here, most likely, 90% of the time, we're going to be teaching out of some book in the Bible. And one of the first things I'm going to say is turn to the book of Titus. We teach expositorily so that we get in the Word and the Word will expose us to all these different theologies and doctrines that we are to hold to and cling to. Offensive. We teach the truth and we protect the church by doing that. We fertilize, we doesn't disqualify them from saying, that doesn't line up. And man, if you're going to hold to that, if you're going to bring other people down with you into that error, you've got to go. We love you. Here's why you're wrong. If you're not going to change, we can't let that remain. Let's pray.